uh, reads, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness and propriety. After the service, that'll be a great way to bless the staff. Um, 1 Timothy 2. Uh, anyone else want to take this one? No? You have been waiting a long time. You've been very patient. And um, I must confess, I, um, given the week that I've had, I don't feel entirely prepared to, um, to preach this morning. But we've put it off too long. We'll, um, we'll make a stab. Um, I've read a lot in preparation for this um, sermon, probably more than any other uh, sermon I've ever given. And all that reading and study, um, th there's a danger with that in then compiling it into a comprehensible 20-minute uh, talk. Um, and you may conclude that uh, I didn't do particularly well with that. But anyway, um, all that reading and study has, has meant I, I do feel like I have a better grasp of the different views out there, a deeper understanding of uh, the passage in 1 Timothy 2, uh, more clarity on what I think, uh, but also more humility uh, in the view that I hold. Uh, let me start by saying, and hopefully you've got a handout, uh, this is a secondary issue, yet it's also a really divisive issue. Uh, when we were kind of planning to begin the ministry here in 2014, uh, I personally received rejection because of my position on this issue from both sides of, of the debate. Uh, some people within the Anglican diocese labeled me too conservative and anti-women. Uh, others, including a church planting organization that I applied to, uh, considered me not conservative enough and uh, rejected my application. Uh, I'm conscious that there's a real possibility that what I say this morning will offend some, uh, might even cause some to think about leaving the church. People have left Barneys in the past because of uh, our position on women in ministry. And I want to say that's tragic that that happened, and it would be tragic if it happened again. Uh, this is a secondary issue. Yes, it's important, and we want to work hard at trying to understand uh, what God teaches in his words, but it's not an issue to divide over. Christians who absolutely believe in the authority of Scripture have arrived at different conclusions. Uh, that doesn't mean we should give up trying to understand it for ourselves, but it does mean, I think, that we should hold our view with humility and should have a spirit of generosity towards those who think differently. So I'm going to present an outline of my view on this issue, how I understand the Bible's teaching, but you don't have to agree. 
Uh, I welcome your feedback, your questions, and at the end of all that discussion, we may arrive at different conclusions, and that's okay. Uh, you can be a member of this church and hold a different view on this issue. The only thing I'd challenge all of us on is what we base our view on. Are we coming to the Bible with our mind already made up, just looking for support for the view uh, that we're sure must be right? Or are we, as much as possible, putting aside any preconceptions in order to hear what God is saying in his word? Uh, final introductory comment. Uh, one of the books I've read, at least uh, most of, is a book called Two Views on Women in Ministry. And it sets out the two main views uh, held by evangelicals, those who want to base their view on the Bible. Uh, there are four contributors, two on each um, side. And what I've really appreciated in reading that book is the humility and respect that all the authors uh, demonstrate. And I'd recommend that as a book to read if you want to dig more into the issue. I'll put a link in the email this week. Uh, it may be worth just saying up front what those two main views are. Sorry, I've got a new Bible and it uh, is refusing to stay open. So that's why I'm kind of fiddling with it. I'm going to put it on else. Uh, the two main views on this issue are called egalitarian and complementarian, two kind of big technical words. Um, very simply, egalitarians believe that um, men and women are equal and all ministry roles in the church are open to both men and women alike. Complementarians also believe men and women are equal but that they have complementary roles that within the family and the church there is a principle of male leadership and therefore certain ministry roles are reserved for men. Now within both camps there's a spectrum of views, uh, but those are the, the two main views. I'm a complementarian and so what I'm outlining this morning uh, is, I guess, a defense for that view. Uh, we're going to start at the beginning. Uh, I haven't got the passages on the screen, so you're going to have to flick in your Bibles or scroll on your phones. Um, right back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And verse 27. So at the end of the creation account in Genesis 1, verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Uh, we learnt a few weeks ago in our catechism how and why did God create us. God created us, male and female, in his own image to glorify him. Uh, so both men and women, we learn here, are created in God's image. Men and women have equal dignity and value. Men and women are both blessed by God. Men and women are both called to fulfill the creation mandate, as it's called, to be fruitful, to fill the earth, and to rule over the rest of creation. In fact, both men and women are essential to humanity fulfilling that creation mandate. So we see in Genesis 1 
a strong affirmation of equality for men and women. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we see that there is difference between the sexes. Uh, a number of things in these chapters point to a difference between the man and the woman. Not a difference in value, but a difference in role. In particular, we see here, I think, hints that the man has a leadership responsibility. Uh, let me um, point them out to you. Uh, firstly, man, the man is created first. Although Genesis 1 tells us God created the male and female, then in chapter 2... Uh, it is the man who's created first. And, and in a culture, in the culture this was written into, that the firstborn, uh, being the firstborn, carried with it privilege and responsibility. Uh, the woman, we're told, is made to be the man's helper. Chapter 2, verse 18. Now that is not a term of inferiority, as if we're being told that the woman's created to be a, a servant or a slave to the, to the man. God is the one most commonly described by this word in the Old Testament as a helper to his people. So it's not a term of inferiority. The woman is essential to the man being able to fulfill his purpose and calling. But here in chapter 2, that, that calling is primarily the man's responsibility. Uh, thirdly, we see that the man names the woman. And that act of naming, he names all the animals, and then he names the woman, that is, implies some authority. And then as we get into Genesis chapter 3, we learn that it is the woman who is deceived by the serpents. She's deceived into disobeying God's command. She eats the forbidden fruit and gives some to her husband who also eats. Now, both are accountable. Both are to blame for what they've done. But what's striking is that when God then comes asking what they've done, he goes first to the man. He goes first to Adam. Although the woman was deceived, the man is held primarily responsible. And throughout the Bible, it's Adam who bears responsibility for this original sin of humanity. Now, on their own, these observations, I think I gave you four, uh, would not be conclusive, but the way the New Testament interprets these things, including in the passage in 1 Timothy, uh, points to a created order of male headship. So, what do we learn from Genesis 1 to 3? God created us, men and women, equal yet different, both essential to fulfilling God's plan for humanity, but having different roles to play. And there are hints here of a divinely intended ordering, uh, male responsibility and headship. Secondly, let's um, survey uh, some of the rest of the Bible. Uh, firstly, a brief look at what we see in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament describes uh, what is clearly a patriarchal society with predominantly male head, uh, leadership in home and religion and society. However, the Old Testament repeatedly affirms the value and the dignity of women in contrast to many of the surrounding nations who viewed women merely as property. The Old Testament also provides many examples of women playing pivotal roles for example, women serve as prophets. Uh, Deborah leads the nation as judge. 
Athalia reigns as queen. Children are um, commanded to obey both their mother and their father, the same identical obedience to both parents. Uh, Rahab, Ruth, and Esther are celebrated as heroes of the faith. Craig Blomberg um, suggests that there's only one religious leadership role that was reserved for men, that of the priesthood. And he says uh, this has traditionally been understood as God wanting to reflect the principle of male headship that was set in creation. So the Old Testament gives us this view in which uh, women are fully involved, active, pivotal members of uh, the nation, uh, playing leadership roles, and yet there's one uh, particular leadership role that's restricted to men. Next, uh, into Jesus and the Gospels. When you read the Gospels, you, you see Jesus engaging with women in deeply personal and affirming ways. For Jesus, women are clearly not second-class citizens. They're not a threat to him. They're not objects of shame, but they're people of value and dignity, worthy of his attention and love. He teaches them. He heals them. He disciples them. In the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, Elizabeth and Mary, the mothers of John and Jesus, are uh, prominent players. Uh, women are part of the group of disciples who travel with Jesus Women ministered to Jesus. Women ministered with Jesus. They stayed by his side at the crucifixion. They watched to see the burial while most of the male disciples had fled. Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman in John 4 is the longest recorded personal conversation that Jesus has with anyone. And she becomes an evangelist to her own people. And similarly, all four Gospels affirm the first witnesses to the resurrection were the women. Uh, also, Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, which we looked at briefly last week, includes strikingly equal treatment for men and women. However, despite all these remarkable advances over his culture, Jesus never promotes uh, full-fledged egalitarianism. Uh, Jesus had a, a closest group of three disciples and then uh, the, the 12 who he appointed as apostles and then a larger group of disciples beyond that. And it's only in that larger group that women appear. Now you could argue that um, it would have been too provocative for him in the cultural setting to include women in that uh, closer group. But given how much Jesus was willing to scandalize his society and go against the cultural norms, uh, I'm not sure that argument holds. And so while there are differences with the Old Testament, I think the same overall principle is present here in the Gospels. There's a surprising, amazing openness to women uh, being involved in ministry, but there's one key restriction. Next, we'll look at uh, the rest of the New Testament, and as in the Gospels, uh, we find women playing prominent roles in the early Christian movement. Uh, many examples, let me mention a few. In particular, Phoebe, who's mentioned in Romans 16. You should read Romans chapter 16, where, where Paul commends uh, a number of different people uh, for their assistance in his gospel ministry, and more than a third of those people are women. 
He mentions in Romans 16 uh, Phoebe. Uh, she's a deacon in the church, and she's probably the person who carried the letter to the Romans to the Romans, indicating her involvement in Paul's ministry. In Philippians 4, Paul tells us that Euodia and Syntyche, these two women, um, had labored by his side in the gospel. Labored by his side. Uh, there are six refer references in the New Testament to uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who were a wife and husband team. Paul describes them as co-workers who had risked their lives for him. Uh, in Romans 16, again, we're told that a church met in their home. And in Acts 18, we're told that they, Priscilla and Aquila, teach Apollos the, the way of God more fully. In those six references, four of them, Priscilla's mentioned first, which it's not conclusive, but it implies that she may well have been the more prominent player in this uh, partnership. So women are heavily involved, fully involved, key members in the early Christian movement. However, as we've seen uh, throughout the Bible, when, when Paul teaches on the qualifications for elders in the church... Uh, those with leadership responsibility and authority, he says they are to be men. The position of deacon, see that there are kind of two main roles that we see in the New Testament church, uh, elders and deacons. And the, the role of deacon does seem to be quite clearly open to both men and women. But when Paul talks about elders, those with overall responsibility and authority in the church, uh, it is uh, uh, reserved for men. We're going to look at a couple of passages in a bit more detail. Firstly, 1 Corinthians 11, and it'd be good to turn to that. Uh, we won't read the whole thing. This is um, a difficult passage, but I think a few things are clear, and it uh, draws out some very helpful perspectives on this issue. Uh, in this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing issues of how the church orders itself when it gathers uh, for worship. And in this passage, Paul's giving instructions for how men and women are to pray and prophesy in a way that is ordered and honorable. What is striking, first up, is that Paul clearly expects both men and women to pray and to prophesy. Exactly what prophesying is remains a topic of debate, but it, in, it clearly involved bringing some message of encouragement to uh, the, the gathered people. However, within this passage that affirms women's participation in Christian worship, Paul's concern is that headship, this principle of headship, is respected. So he, he affirms the equality and interdependence of men and women. Have a look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So we've seen equality affirmed throughout the Bible. Here, not just equality, but interdependence between men and women. But he also makes a clear statement about male headship. 
So have a look at verse 2 and 3. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, some people suggest that the word head that's used here and in uh, Ephesians 5 is not talking about leadership authority, but this word is commonly used uh, to describe the source of something, the kind of origin. Personally, I don't find that um, persuasive because in verse 10 of the passage, Paul talks explicitly about authority And in Ephesians 5, where Paul's talking about husbands and wives, he links the husband's headship with the wife's submission. Seems to be clearly not just talking about origin, but authority. But I think this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 contains a really helpful perspective on headship and submission. Because it says that just as there's a principle of headship within marriage, so there is headship within God himself. Verse 3 again, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so, if the very idea of an authoritative head is offensive to you, what do you make of Jesus' submission to the Father? Jesus is fully God, absolutely equal uh, with the Father in divinity, yet Jesus submits to the Father. There is a hierarchy, if you like, within the Godhead. Jesus' submission to the Father is not something shameful. It's something beautiful. Finally, let's turn to the passage in 1 Timothy. And we're not going to cover all the details. Um, Firstly, let me um, just remind you briefly of the the context and the purpose of this letter. Paul's writing to Timothy, his partner in the gospel, his apprentice, and he's writing to Timothy about his leadership in the Ephesian church, where false teaching has gained a hearing. Paul is writing so that people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And part of Paul's concern through the letter is for order within the church. It's clear in the passage here in chapter 2 that Paul has that concern for order. He, He writes that men are to pray without anger. He wants women to dress modestly with decency. And then he gives instructions about women learning and teaching. Uh, These verses have been hotly debated, much ink has been spilled, almost every word is argued over. Uh, Let me read again verses 11 to 15 and then ask three questions uh, as a way of unpacking them. So verse 11, Paul says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing 
if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Okay, before we get to the three questions, it's um, worth noticing that verse 11 is a positive command. Paul wants women to learn. Just as Mary sat at Jesus' feet and was commended for listening to him, so Paul wants women to be fully engaged in learning, growing in knowledge and understanding and faith. When he says he wants them to learn in quietness, that's not silence, but, but rather a, a quiet spirit, a teachable spirit. And when he talks about submission, the, the submission he calls for, um, I think is, is no more than the submission required by any member of the church uh, as they submit themselves to the authoritative teaching of God's words. But what of verse 12? Uh, one word here in the NIV I think is unhelpful. The NIV translates it, assume authority, which I think has the connotation that this is something negative, that the woman is um, not to usurp authority. Uh, better is um, to translate it simply as have authority. So I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So three questions. Firstly, is this limited to the situation in Ephesus. It's clear from chapter 5 that some of the people influenced by the false teaching in Ephesus were women. And that's led some to conclude that what Paul says in chapter 2 is addressing that specific situation of women who've been influenced and who are maybe now passing on that false teaching. And so he's saying, he's telling those women to stop. Stop teaching falsely. The difficulties with that line of interpretation are that Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say women should stop. He doesn't say women should not teach false doctrine. He said women should not teach men or have authority over men. If Paul's concern is to stop false teaching, why does he single out women? Surely men and women both need to Stop teaching falsely. And thirdly, and I think I just can't get kind of over this, um, Paul roots his instruction in the created order. Something that we also saw in the 1 Corinthians 11 passage. Verse 13 begins for. In other words, it gives the reason for his instruction in verse 12. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Paul is addressing a specific situation in the church in Ephesus. But the instructions that he gives are timeless because they're rooted in God's created order. Second question, is Paul talking here in verse 12 about two things or one thing? In other words, is, is Paul saying women are not to teach men and not to have authority over men? Or are those two things really one thing? The technical word is hendiadis. Example, we might say uh, it's nice and warm. And we're not talking about two things. We're saying it's, nice, it's a nice temperature. It's nicely warm. 
So could Paul here be talking about one thing? Not teaching and authority, but authoritative teaching. It raises the question, what is that? What is authoritative teaching? And some people conclude, including Tim Keller, who you know I have the highest respect for, that what Paul is talking about here is that women should not have the position in the church of elder or overseer or pastor, the position of overall authority, which you know, would tie in with what he goes on to talk about in chapter 3, qualifications for overseers, uh, which is restricted to men. And so these people would say that there's a certain kind of teaching, authoritative teaching, that goes along with that authoritative role as elder in the church. And presumably that, that teaching would be teaching that lays down, you know, this is what we believe as a church, and this is the direction that we're going to go in as a church, and, and this is how the church is going to operate. Teaching that expresses that leadership authority uh, of the role. And so they say that that's what Paul's talking about here. But other forms of teaching, well, they're open to women as well as men. So is Paul talking about one thing here or two? This is probably getting way too technical for you, but um, hopefully you're with me. The answer is he could be, but probably not. Yeah, as I've read, the scholars, and there's a guy called Andreas Kostenberger, uh, who's done extensive study of the Greek grammar and syntax and looked at extra-biblical passages and fairly overwhelming. Uh, I'm persuaded that it is better to read this as two things. Uh, that it's not a hendiades. Uh, that Paul is specifically saying women are not to teach men nor to have authority over men, i.e. hold the position of elder overseer. Okay, third question. What is teaching? If Paul is saying he doesn't permit women to teach, what is that? What is teaching? We, we've seen already, haven't we, that Paul expected women to prophesy in the church. So clearly he doesn't think they're going to be silent. They're going to be bringing uh, some message to the church. So what's the difference between prophecy and teaching? And how do they both relate to a modern-day sermon. John Dixon uh, has written a book all about this question, and he argues that teaching is a technical word, not dissimilar to the authoritative teaching I described a minute ago. He says teaching means preserving and laying down the tradition handed on by the apostles. Preserving and laying down the traditions handed on by the apostles. So, instruction in Christian doctrine. This is what we believe kind of teaching. And he suggests that while modern sermons contain some element of teaching, they're not entirely the same thing, and so women should be allowed to preach, at least on occasion in certain circumstances. He suggests that most sermons are comprised mostly of commentary on the biblical text and application. Now let me say, this is John Dixon's view is pretty close to the view that I held for the last 10 years, albeit far less thought through. I was happy for women to preach, at least 
occasionally. However, as I've studied in preparation for this sermon, I'm now less persuaded by that view. I'm not sure that it's right to understand teaching in that restrictive, technical way that Dixon proposes. I wonder if we're better to understand teaching in a more general way as the transmission of truth from one person to another. Uh, Usually in a relationship where there's some order uh, and authority, like a parent to child, uh, teacher to students. I've also reflected more on what is happening when someone preaches a sermon, and I think that commentary plus application is an inadequate description. Uh, Another writer, Lionel Windsor, says, sermons at their best are communicative acts in which a preacher, empowered by the Spirit of God, delivers God's truth to his hearers in a way which transfixes and transforms their whole heart, mind, will, conscience, and affections. He goes on to say, there's a relational dynamic going on when someone preaches that is different to someone just sitting down and reading a biblical commentary. And that is why the preacher has and should feel a weighty responsibility towards his hearers. He is communicating God's truth to them. They are learning God's truth and need to respond accordingly. So what is teaching? Well, we could debate that more. And what's the difference with prophecy and what are we doing in a, in a sermon? Uh, I've come to a more conservative view where I actually think what we're doing in preaching on a Sunday, Sunday by Sunday, is closely aligned with what Paul's talking about here when he says women are not to teach. So in the past, I've been open to women preaching. I, I now think that's probably not appropriate. I could be wrong. You don't have to agree. But I think that's a change in my view, and pastoral leadership team will be kind of working through our policy as a church. Let me make some brief comments in terms of application. I'd love us to be discussing this more as, as a church and, and doing that with that spirit of generosity, charity towards one another. Uh, but let me make some uh, brief applicatory comments. Um, for me personally, as I said, more clarity, I think, in, in what I understand the Bible to be teaching, but also more humility. As I said, I could be wrong, and this is a secondary issue. Let's not let it be divisive. Uh, In some ways, I've become more conservative. I now think uh, women should not preach. Uh, But I've also become more keen to have women involved in the ministry of the church as much as possible. I think there's a a danger for those of us who are complementarian that we we kind of read the restrictions and uh, we try and play it safe and enlarge those restrictions. It's kind of what Jack was talking about earlier, that we go actually beyond what the Bible's restricting. And so I've been part of churches where they've taken this to mean not just women shouldn't be elders and shouldn't preach, but shouldn't lead, uh, shouldn't um, even lead a mixed Bible study group. Uh, I love that at Barney's we have women involved uh, in multiple ways, 
uh, using their gifts, serving fully, leading on Sundays, leading ministries, sharing in five for fives, um, praying, uh, and in other informal personal settings. I believe that the role of elder is reserved for qualified men, and for us at Barney's, that means members of the pastoral leadership team. But I love that we're bringing Kate on as a staff member here and as an assistant minister. Let me say in conclusion, in all our exercising of authority and leadership, we want to follow Christ in his servant leadership. And in all our submission, we want to follow the beautiful submission of Jesus to his Father. Let me pray as we finish. Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his example, both of leadership and of submission. We recognize again that that these are uh, difficult issues to address, and we pray for your ongoing help that you would grant us all uh, clarity, faithfulness to the scriptures, uh, love and charity towards one another and those with whom we differ. We pray that uh, in the way that we operate as a church, we would be seeking uh, your will, seeking to be obedient uh, to what you've taught, and that you would uh, lead us and grow us in these things, uh, that we would be a church in which men and women are uh, fully involved and engaged, serving in all appropriate ways with the gifts that you've blessed us with, to the glory of your name. Amen.